0: I have a couple kids, which you probably didn't know because I never talk about them ever, but I have a couple kids. One is six. Her name is Abby. The other is four. His name is Jude. And one of my favorite things to do with them right now is to set them in the backyard and let them paint. And when I when you watch them paint, you get like the best of both worlds. Like they couldn't be the more opposite. Abby with her refined taste and her articulate, you know, uh, way of being, and the way that she just kind of touches the brush into the paint and makes a masterpiece, usually a rainbow with uh, unicorns coming out of it. But like she's just so thoughtful and precise. And then over on this side is four-year-old Jude, who doesn't even know that there's a piece of paper on the table. He's already got his shirt off and the paint smeared on his chest like Braveheart. And he always, he always does this, I've noticed. He doesn't even paint the paper. He takes his brush and eventually it evolves into his hand and he just begins to smear all the colors together. And how many of you know that when you smear all the colors together, no matter what colors you have, you end up with one color, which is usually like an olive green. It actually looks like something else. I'm not going to say what it looks like. I'll just use the word olive green, okay? So that's what Jude ends up with, just a big old pile of olive green, just nasty, just right there on the paper. And he will inevitably get to this point where he's super disappointed because he sees Abby creating this masterpiece, with all these different colors and he's like I don't I want to do that I only have all this this color dad give me some more blue you know he might say that and so I'll come over with a little carton of blue I'll give him a big old blob of blue and he'll start mixing it in with the olive green now what does blue and olive green make olive green it makes more olive green. And he'll just do this like a cycle. I need more yellow. I need more blue. I need black. I need white. And it will just just kind of uh, just slowly acclimate into the solid sludgy color, at which point he will become incredibly disappointed because he can't paint the picture that he wanted to paint. And this is exactly like the kind of situation that the Colossian church is finding themselves in. This fledgling group of beginning Christians and maturing Christians have found themselves in a world, in a context where they are surrounded by a lot of religious colors. There's a lot of of stuff to choose from. There's some stuff with some truth in it. There's some stuff with not a lot of truth in it. There's some good ideas, great philosophies, world religions. There's good practices and lifestyles. And there's so much that for these, these beginning Christians and even for more mature Christians, slightly more mature, Paul has this need to speak into their life because there's some confusion going on. What are some of the colors in the cultural or religious landscape of Colossi? Well, one of them is a form of mysticism. Mysticism, at its most basic sense, is a, a direct encounter with God. You know, and there is a Christian version of that. Uh, encountering God, uh, experiencing the presence of God through Christ, right? There's also some counterfeits to that. Uh, that we see all throughout the world. But we see this in Paul. Paul actually says in Ephesians, he says, I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being by the power of the Spirit so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. A deep, personal experience of God. Jesus would say, to all the people who believe in me, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is a direct, personal experience of God. It's in there. And there's also a lot of counterfeits. There's also a lot of demonic stuff. There's all sorts of stuff in there. We have that same variety all throughout uh, Colossi. On the other end of the spectrum is uh, uh, Judaism. And really just a, 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 a kind of a hybrid of Judaism. It's people that are trying to like hide from that amorphous uh, type of mysticism that they see. And they're really wanting structure and law and rules. And they find it in Judaism. Uh, And even of the law, that's not inherently bad. Paul says the law is actually good. The commandments of God are good. You're the problem, right? (laughs) I'm the problem, not God's law. The law is just there to expose that we have a problem. And so all across the religious landscape are all of these options. Some are good, some are bad, some are a mixture of good and bad, which is bad. And then you have these Christians. They just met Christ. They just encountered Christ, they were baptized, they give their lives to the Lord, and they're now looking across this cultural landscape going, oh, what do I do? And there's this conflation of spiritual ideas available to them. Uh, It is, the problem in Colossae is what we might call syncretism, syncretism. That is the mixing of religious ideas and practices from a wide range of sources. That's what's going on here. So what you have, what, what's, the problem that's happening here isn't like a people directly encountering God through Christ, and it's not like 100% Judaism, it's like this weird mixture of all of that. It's what you might call like a Jewish transcendental mysticism, and Paul is writing into that. Uh, the problem, in other words, isn't that Christ, Christ wasn't outright rejected. He wasn't being outright rejected here. This is, this is a problem that's not, not unique to Colossi, but to Santa Barbara. I want you to listen to this. Christ isn't so much being outright rejected, so much as he is being added to a pre existing buffet of spirituality. You all hearing me? The problem is rarely that people are rejecting Jesus, most people love Jesus. Even staunch atheists might have some good things to say about Jesus. In other words, rarely do you hear this. Someone comes along and they're like, no, you better watch out about that Jesus fellow. He's a terrible person. Bad teachings, awful. Not doesn't love anybody at all. You know, you, you never hear that. It's that's never usually the problem. The problem is usually, ah, I love Jesus. I love what he does. I'll just add that to my pre-existing life until it doesn't work out. Yeah? The problem is not an outright rejection of Jesus, but a syncretism. I will add Christ to the life and agenda that I've already constructed for myself. Until the point that it doesn't work out anymore. Now, in Colossi, the, the, the palette of olive green was made up of some things that I shared with you. Uh, so, like a Jewish transcendental mysticism. But what's, the, what's the culture today that threatens to assimilate the, the pathway of Christ? To turn it into an olive green? What's the water that we breathe? Well, most, a lot of sociologists will say something of this nature. It's kind of like the Holy Trinity of American culture and values. I'll give you the first one. It's radical individualism, right? And I say radical because individualism isn't bad. Individualism is good. Radical individualism... Uh, can, be, can be defined as something like this. It is when the self is made the primary goal of life, when you are the center of the universe, right? Radical individualism. The second part of the, that, uh, that little conglomeration there is what we might call a massive consumerism. Uh, consumerism, what is that? That is when the interests of the individual person Are the highest priority right and then I'll throw in a third and that is instant gratification instant gratification is a lack of grit and resilience as soon as something doesn't work out you move on to the next thing and you throw all of those three things together that's the water we breathe whether you're a Christian or not whether you realize you're breathing the water or not that's our that's the oxygen of our culture Radical individualism, consumerism, and instant gratification. Now, what what does that do to Christianity? What might syncretism look like? I'll give you an example. Now, you you might be swimming in this water and then come to church, get baptized, discover Jesus, be like, yes, that's awesome! Now, let me add that to what I've already established in other words, radical individualism, self is of most importance. If I am at the center of my universe, everything will be right and good. And so what do we do with Jesus? Well, Jesus will give me the life that I want. Yeah, of course I'll add him. Step in there, Jesus, right there next to, you know, everything else that I've got going. What's consumerism look like? Well, I like what God says about this right here. I don't really like the, the first half of the Bible, though. Consumerism, that which serves our purposes and interests. That's what we take and we kind of do away with the rest. I like what God says about the marginalized, that's cool. I don't really like what God says about my sexuality. I wish he would not touch that, none of his business. I really like how Jesus spoke truth to power, yeah! I really don't like what he says about loving your enemies. So I'm gonna speak truth to power, not love my enemies. Consumerism. That's how consumerism would affect a person's Christianity. And and instant gratification, what does that do to affect our faith? Well, because we want what we want and we want it now, when it doesn't work out, we simply shove it back into the corner because of a lack of grit and resilience. So Jesus, I'll follow you. Actually, not really follow you. I'll add you to the buffet of things already going on in my life, the agenda that I've set to make myself the center of my own universe. But I'm only going to listen to the things that you say that reinforces that. And when those things stop working for me the way that I want, I'm done with you. That's what syncretism might look like in Santa Barbara today. And so you could be going to church. You could be calling out on the name of Jesus. You could be doing all the things. On the outside, on the, uh, externally, you can be saying all the right things and dotting all the Eyes and crossing all the spiritual T's, but you don't. The gospel has not taken root in your heart. He has just been added as a supplement to an agenda and a lifestyle you've already concocted that is built around you. And for hundreds, thousands of people in Santa Barbara, we're slowly learning that it's not working. That a life built around myself does not actually satisfy what I was created for. The book of Ecclesiastes says that you were made with eternity in your heart. That is a large capacity, you know. You were made to be filled by an eternal kind of thing. And you will find, even if you have not discovered this right now, that that the more you try to fill that with radical individualistic and consumeristic and instant gratification needs uh, and desires and purposes that you will, it will be found wanting. And so what do we do? Well, because that's not working, we just hop onto the next thing. Maybe that will uh, satisfy my desires. Oh, uh, that doesn't work. Oh, well, maybe that will satisfy my desires. Oh, we move on from that because it's not working anymore. Maybe this will satisfy my desires. And on and on and on as we grow tired and exhausted and fatigued. World can't satisfy us. We can't, we cannot, we do not have the capacity to lift up or to fill up our own souls. And at a certain point, and I think this is by the grace of God, some of us come to a place where we're like, I need something better. I don't need all of these colors. I need something that will fill my stomach. I'm hungry. I need something filling. Uh, remember going to a restaurant with uh, my wife, Brianna, for a special occasion. And I do what I always do, and I look down the menu at the most, like, crazy and weird, exotic thing on the menu, and that's what I want. And Brie responds the way that she always does by saying, you're not going to be happy with that. Just get the burger ever been to like a wedding, like a wedding reception? They offer two things. It's always two things, fish or steak. Here's a universal principle of God. You never get the fish. You're going to go away from that wedding hungry, and it's not going to taste as good. The steak is always better than the fish. Now, if you're a vegetarian, insert your own analogy. The tofu is always better than the steak, whatever. But in that same way, I always come away going like, why did I do that? Why did I get distracted by the novelty wanting all of these things when I know it's going to satisfy my stomach? In the same way, we have looked like, I'm convinced one of the hardest things about living as a spiritual being in Santa Barbara is options. There's so much here available to you. There's so much to do. There's so much to be. There's so much stuff to fill your life with. And you can easily get caught up in the cycle where you're like, awesome. I'm just going to do that, 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 and that. And you're wondering after years of doing that why your life feels so shallow. It's because you've been spreading yourself thin over a variety of options when what your soul needs, as eternal as it is, is depth. Should have got the burger. What does that look like for Christians, for people hungering after God? Well, it, needs that, it means that at some point in our life, we need to stop ordering our worlds around us and to begin ordering our world around God's world. Kind of the shorthand uh, terminology for God's world is God's kingdom which essentially just means the way that God does things, the things that God desires in the way that he does them. That's God's kingdom. That's why Jesus would teach us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven for his kingdom to come And his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what is God's kingdom? It's anywhere where God's will, his heart, and his desire is taking place. That is definitely happening in God's world. But we're also praying and desiring that it would happen in our world. In our jobs, in our relationships, in our family. In our living rooms, in our kitchens. In our recreation. And that alone is what satisfies the human soul. And what would a community that is reordered around God's kingdom look like? I think Paul gives us a little glimpse of that in his greeting to the Colossian church. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is verse 3 through 5. Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. We heard of your love for all the saints. And we heard of your hope laid up for you in heaven. We heard of your faith, hope, and love. Where have you heard those three words before? Some of you, if you've, uh, you've been around church for a while, you might have heard it from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've never heard any of this before, this is all new to you. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 through 13. Paul, after speaking about all the varied ways in which we are gifted, our talents, our desires, our gifts, then goes on to say, and by the way, all of those things are going to pass away. They are perishable, they're not permanent. Here are three things that will always last. So get these three things. This is what he says. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Isn't that incredible? One translation puts it this way. These are the imperishable things. Imperishable. In other words, the argument Paul is making in that letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is that there are, there are imperishables that will last forever. In other words, if, my, if the power went out for two weeks at your house or my house and everything's spoiled in my refrigerator, what, what, if you were to open up my refrigerator, what would be spoiled? Most of it. What would, be le- what would be left? Well, probably if it was my refrigerator, it would be water, that box of baking soda in the back, the big carton of soy sauce and that bottle of Cholula. Those are the four things that never pass away. Paul is saying a similar thing, similar, he's saying what are the imperishables that you want in your community fridge? If you had to, if you had to work for something, if you had to grow in something, if, if there were only three things that mattered, what would they be? Faith, hope, and love. What, what are those three things? I'm going to give you a couple definitions. Faith is the conviction to act on what you know to be true, Okay? Faith is simply acting on what you already know to be true about God. Hope is the confidence to endure when life is challenging, when faith is challenging. In other words, it's something in the future that's, tr- that's pulling you forward into the future and stirring up your faith. What is love? Love is being committed to somebody's highest good, without guarantee of reciprocity and often at your own expense. Faith is the conviction to act on what you know to be true. Hope is the confidence to endure and love is being committed to the highest good of other people without regard for yourself or without guarantee of reciprocity. So if I could put all of this into a single sentence, what would this look like in a community? What would this look like in a church? It would look like, and what we see in Colossians, is a community hanging on to what Christ says and participating in what Christ is doing and will do and leading into a relentless love for people around them. That's it. Hey, just use your imagination for a second. What would that look like in a group of people? People who believe Christ, who hope for the future, and are madly in love with people around them without regard for themselves. That would be incredible. And Paul is writing this letter because he sees this beginning to happen in a small little town in Asia Minor, Colossae. He's seeing the the beginnings, the remnants of faith, hope, and love beginning to take root in this fledgling group of Christians, and yet they're about to lose their way. They're about to be confused by all sorts of the hodgepodge of options that threaten to derail their faith in in God, and he's reminding them, faith, hope, and love. This isn't just the Colossian church. Paul is constantly bringing up those three things. Lest you think this is just one letter. Look at the communities that we see those three things popping up. Look at Romans chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, then, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Faith, hope, and love. There it is again. But it doesn't stop there. The Galatian church. Galatians chapter 5. For through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. There it is again. He doesn't stop. To the Ephesian church. With all humility and gentleness and with patience, he says, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope and that belongs to your call, one Lord and one faith and one baptism. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, remember before our God and Father your work in the faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in that same book, he'll say it again, hey, let's be sober and put on the breastplate of faith, love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Why do these things keep coming up? It's because they are the currency of the kingdom of God. That where you see those three things fomenting, growing out of the soil, you are sure to see the activity and presence of the living God who always results in the fruit of these three things. Faith and hope and love are what a community will look like when it is reordered around something besides itself, specifically God. And that's what's happening in Colossae, at least right now that's also what could happen in Santa Barbara why doesn't it happen in Santa Barbara what's going to threaten to, de- to derail the- these fledgling Christians in Colossae the same thing that we started talking about love of self this desire in us this Western cultural desire in us to reorient the world around ourselves so what needs to happen? A reorienting. And yet, how many of you have tried to do that on a few Monday occasions? Oh, that was a great sermon, kind of. I'm going I'm to reorient my world around God starting tomorrow. Let's go. You hit a wall. The wall of your selfishness. <laughs> the wall of your <laughs> deep, Selfish desires that I have, that we have. We snap at people. We cut corners. We forget about the love of God that has been poured abroad into our hearts, and we just try to make thing hap- things happen because the deepest desire for a lot of us is even though we might add Christ to the concoction, to the cocktail of our spirituality, underneath that is still just this habitual love of self. And so, yes, we need to reorient our world around something bigger than self, but it's harder to do. It's easier to say than it is to do. That's why the good news is so good. Paul says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. The solution to the cavernous abyss of the human heart and soul has nothing to do with you. The solution has been brought to you. The gospel itself states that. It comes from a word, uh, euangelion, which means the good news. And it is an announcement. It is not advice. It's not something that you do. It's something that is offered for you and to you. What is the gospel? It is the good news that God's kingdom, that which we've been talking about, the best thing that could ever happen to your life and to the world around you, the gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has broken into your disordered world through Jesus Christ. That even in our disordered fallen estate, even in my tendency and proclivity to make everything about me, Jesus Christ still came. He invaded my world. He stepped into it and he said, I am going to rearrange the furniture of your life around me. It's going to be the best thing you've ever seen in your life. How about it? The only response that he's allotted me is to say, Yes, Christ, Jesus, transforms selfish, broken hearts and souls. This is what he's been doing for centuries this is what he continues to do now. And he does it not by adding a few things that he said over the years to the life that you've already built for yourself, but by taking your life, causing you to die to your life, and giving you something better. His life, hidden in God. He comes to you and says, not, not uh, I have some advice for you, and if you follow it, you'll have your best life now. Rather, he says, come to me. Come and die. Come and die and experience what true joy is actually about. Come die to those things that you used to be chasing and find what eternal kind of life is actually about. Come and die to your human resources. Come and die to your proclivities. Come and die, surrender, in other words, all of those things that you used to run to and find true life in who I am. It is there and at the fountain of Christ Jesus that the soul with its eternal capacity for love will begin to be filled for the first time. Make no mistake, Jesus offers to nobody a few supplements to their life. He demands it all. Give up your life and follow me. And the gospel is the good news that his world, God's world, is broken into our disordered world through Jesus, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And yet that was not merely a parlor trick, was it? It wasn't just Jesus saying, look at what I can do. This is awesome. Although it certainly was that. But Paul would later go on to say in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 15, that Jesus was the firstborn of many brethren and sistren. I made that last word up. Meaning, he's the first to be raised from the dead. He's the first of many people that will give up their lives to be raised to real life. In other words, the resurrection is not just good news of what happened to Jesus, it's good news of what can happen to you. As you forsake your own life in order to find your true life in the Messiah. Which leads us to this question, what or how do we, how do we, how do we experience that? And for us, the Bible simply calls every person in this room to respond to the gospel. Now, that might make sense to people who are not yet Christians, or maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're not sure. And you're like, I think, I don't know, I've been to church t- two times. Does that mean it? You know, I'm a Christian. Not sure, but I'm really curious. I'm really interested in this. Really like this Jesus guy. I want to understand what this is. And the Bible for you is simple and clear to respond to the gospel. That simply means what we've been talking about giving up your life and following after a better life in Christ, where your life is now reoriented not around yourself, but around God and Jesus. This is what Paul would say in Colossians chapter 5 and 6, since the day you heard it. It's been bearing fruit in your life since the day you heard the gospel and understood the grace of God and uh, God in truth. In other words, there's this faith-filled response to this good news that God has invaded our world through Jesus Christ. But then there's some of you in this room who are asking, how do you respond to the gospel when you already responded to the gospel like 20 years ago? Some of us might think of the gospel as like Christianity 101. You know, it's like the first step of our spirituality. But after the first step, we kind of graduate to like advanced Christianity. Gospel is like back there, right? It couldn't be farther from the truth. The gospel is not just Christianity 101. It's Christianity 102 and Christianity 103 and Christianity 104 and 405 and 789. The gospel is the Christian life. Just that truth that God has invaded our world in this person, Jesus Christ, that permeates everything that we do. So what would it look like for some of you that are like, I gave my life to Christ 20 years ago, or last year, or five years ago. How do I respond to the gospel? It's simply this, that we are continuing, just like we did at the very beginning, to invite the Lord God as our Lord, not just Savior, but as our Lord and King, to continue to reorder our priorities around the true King of our lives and not just ourselves. That's how you, that's how you grow in the gospel. It never stops. This is what Paul would refer to in Colossians 1, verse 5 through 8. It's, the gospel isn't just something that awakens you to life in Christ. It's also bearing fruit and increasing how is it increasing? By constantly reordering our priorities and our lives around the true king. By constantly expanding the capacity of our hearts for more of God. So are you growing in faith and hope and love? Are you sensing, not in, not in a place of judgment and condemnation, but, but hope and excitement? Hey, I, I have more trust in Christ than I did a year ago. I have more hope for the future. Yeah, life is hard, life is shambles, actually, if I'm completely honest, but I just believe that God is good. Are you a little more loving than you were last, last year? Don't compare yourself to somebody else, but you know for me, am I a little less snappy with people than I was five years ago? I think I am. Yay. The gospel! This idea that God is near and he's active even when we don't see it. And each moment of the day, we can continue to respond to it. And that's what the the book of Colossians is going to be all about. We're just going to go deeper down that rabbit trail. But for now, I want to leave you with a couple things to ask yourself, to start us on this journey as we go down it together. And I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out here as we sing. And the question is this. uh, one, have the, the two things to think through. One, have you responded to the gospel? And two, are you right now reordering your life around the gospel? And maybe you don't know. Maybe you need a deeper question to probe that with. And so maybe what, what you can do as we sing together is to bring this before the Lord. Your king, your savior, your master, your teacher. And to say, Jesus Christ, I want, I desire for you to be the sole and primary center of my life because I believe that that is the best thing. Maybe you're having a little hard time with that right now. That's okay. Just be honest with the Lord and say, "What, Lord, in what ways are you wanting to encroach on my way of doing things? Show me what that is. Show me what you want reordered in my life right now. But also show me the joy of that. Uh, wean me off of my lesser appetites so that I can see that what you're actually trying to replace in my life is actually good because you're good. And fill with flame the eternity that you set, apart, uh, set in my heart and begin to fan it. Some of you are some of You're tired. You're tired. You've been spinning your wheels trying to find that right button to push that will make your life okay, and you haven't found it yet, and you never will apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the good news is that he is here now by his manifest Holy Spirit, extending to you the same invitation that he always has been. And I pray that today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, you just begin to look up. And to say, God, what needs to be reordered in my life that I might experience more of you? Let's bring that question before him today. Whether you are not yet a Christian or whether you've been uh, doing the church thing for all your life. The same question. Christ, where can you make room in my heart for you? There's carpets at the front for those of you that like to carve out solitude and just kneel before God. You can do that. You can hit up an empty chair, get by yourself in the dark if that helps you. Sit, stand, lift your hands, kneel down. Uh, there's also the bread and the cup to both sides, which is uh, something that Jesus taught us to do. He said to, uh, to his followers to take the bread, which symbolizes his body, which was broken on our behalf, And to dip it into the cup, which symbolizes his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And every time that we do that, it is this visual reminder that not only is the universe not revolving around us, but neither is our salvation. Every time you take of that morsel, I pray that you would get a visual reminder that your salvation is not in your hands. And that you would also say, thank God it's not. Let's praise our King and our Lord and our Savior Come and get prayer from either side of the room, from the prayer team if you need breakthrough in your life. But let's just marinate in this moment and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to reorganize our life in a different direction.